Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today's show is one of our postscript podcasts in which we invite authors to react to contemporary political events that engage their scholarship. Since the United States Supreme Court wrapped up their term, I've been talking to authors like Steve Vladek, Morgan Hazelton, and Rachel Hinkle about how the court uses briefs to make decisions, but also takes lots of cases on the shadow docket with no arguments. We've also started a conversation about uh, uh, guns with Joseph Bloker and Andrew Willinger from the Duke Center for Firearms Law about a controversial Second Amendment case that the court will hear this fall, United States versus Rahimi. To dig deeper into the relationship between firearms and intimate partner violence, I'm thrilled to welcome Kelly Roscom, the Director of Law and Policy at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy. Professor Roscom studies the constitutional implications of, advocates for, and works to improve the implementation of firearms laws. She's written both in scholarly and more public-facing venues like Ms. Magazine. She's also been writing about the practical implications of the Rahimi case since it came up uh, through the Fifth Circuit, and I'll have links to some terrific articles um, that she's written with some colleagues uh, in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining Postscript, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Um, oh, I also forgot to say that, uh, you know, you have a real connection to political science because you got your bachelor's in history and political science from the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and your JDs from Pennsylvania State University's Dickinson School of Law. So you're, you're a great guest for, um, for Postscript. Um, let's just start with your role as the director of law and policy at the Hopkins Center. Are, are you a researcher, a lobbyist, a litigator? Like, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. Well, thank you. I do a little bit of each of those things. So the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions is situated in the school's Bloomberg School of Public Health. It's a combined research and advocacy center, the first of its kind in the country related to firearms. And so within the center, we have some of the nation's leading gun violence prevention researchers. Um, I don't want to name drop in case I miss anybody. And I work with just universally wonderful colleagues. Uh, For about 10 years, I had worked for a gun violence prevention nonprofit organization that did a lot of advocacy work. And we merged with the, the Hopkins Center to become this research and advocacy powerhouse. And so much of what we do is policy research, policy development, advocacy, and also litigation. So I've spent quite a lot of time uh, developing policy recommendations, advocating for the passage of those laws in mainly state legislatures. Um, So I've had a hand in helping to craft many of the nation's extreme risk protection order laws. 
and also um, dabbled on the litigation side most recently in this brief in United States versus Rahini. All right, and we're going to get to the Rahini case, and we're going to remind everyone what it's about. But but I do want to say that like firearms policy used to be made by legislators, <laughs> and in in state, and sometimes uh, Congress would do it as well. But increasingly, courts have had uh, have limited the kind of power that they can have to make these kinds of decisions. You know, is besides Rahini, is there anything on your radar now that we should know about before we jump into this case? Well, the center works in five primary policy priority areas, including um, firearm removal policies, so domestic violence protective orders, uh, extreme risk protection orders, um, purchaser licensing, uh, also called permit to purchase, sometimes just licensing, safe storage, community violence prevention and intervention. Um, And so those are some of the main areas that we are looking at right now. There have been quite a few cases in Oregon after they passed their ballot initiative establishing purchaser licensing. That's one area that we're looking at very closely and also child access prevention and safe storage. Um, so we had filed a brief in a Seventh Circuit case called Miller versus Smith, which had to do with regulations on firearms in in-home daycares and foster homes. Um, you know, Research shows that where you're preventing access of firearms to children, uh, you're really decreasing the risk that they are going to hurt and injure themselves or somebody else. Which is interesting because in the original Heller case, Justice Breyer has uh, the second dissent. And and one of his focuses is violence against children and the children's access to guns. And it's funny because he's not that interested in thinking about domestic violence at all. In fact, he sidesteps that. He talks about you know, a gun that's in a, um, uh, a nightstand, you know, a shared nightstand. And so he's focused on like intruders, but it, he's also focused on children. And, and so it is interesting how it is that legislators, courts, and also the public and these ballot initiatives reacts and, and tends to agree on some of the things that it sounds like, um, the, the center is watching very closely. Uh, most Supreme Court cases start with like a person who's been harmed and who claims some sort of a constitutional protection. Now, this is a really strange case because there was a person who was beat up in a parking lot, but and there's a person who beat her up, and that's the person who is claiming to be harmed, to have had his Second Amendment rights taken away. So w- would you explain the facts of this uh, case before we start talking about your brief and and what you think might come of this case in the Supreme Court? Absolutely. So the the defendant in this case is Zaki Rahimi. He was um, alleged to have beat up his girlfriend in a parking lot in 2019. They had gotten into an altercation. He had dragged her to the car, pushed her into it, hitting her head on the dashboard. When he realized that a bystander had witnessed all of this, he took his gun and shot into the air. Um, his his girlfriend, um, called CM in the filing by the government, took the opportunity to flee uh, to her home. Later that night, Rahimi called her, threatening to shoot her if she told anybody what had happened. 
And then later um, in 2020 and early 2021, Zaki Rahimi was involved in no fewer than five shootings in and around Arlington, Texas, uh, one in which he had gotten into an argument with a gentleman to whom he allegedly sold narcotics, where he shot into that person's home, one in which he had gotten into a road rage incident after a truck had flashed its lights at him. He pursued the truck and then fired a couple shots into a car that was traveling behind the truck. Uh, When his friend's credit card was declined at a fast food restaurant, he shot a couple um, bullets into the air. Uh, In between that time, he had assaulted yet another woman. Um, So when, when the court in the Fifth Circuit says that he's hardly a model citizen, they're really burying the lead there. So... Police became aware that he was a suspect in these shootings in and around Arlington, Texas. They sought and received a search warrant to search his home where they found uh, a long gun, a handgun, and some ammunition. They also found a copy of the protective order that his girlfriend had sought and received against him that was a qualifying protective order under the federal law, 18 U.S.C. 922 G8. So he was charged with being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. The case made its way through the courts prior to the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin, where they upheld this this charge against him for being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. Intervening is the decision in Bruin, which drastically altered the landscape of uh, Second Amendment analysis. So it was remanded for reevaluation. Um, and we got this really egregious Fifth Circuit opinion in um, originally in February of this year, and then the substitute opinion in March. And um, before we go on to talk about why this opinion is so egregious, and I agree, and before the podcast started, I admitted to you that I was reading it alone, and I was glad I was alone because the, some of the things that are said in the opinion trivializing uh, domestic violence are just head shaking and um, enraging. But before we go there, uh, you've mentioned a qualified protective order. We have a lot of people listening who are, are not attorneys or don't follow um, this or are not scholars of uh, d- uh, domestic violence. We, just explain what these protective orders are and and why it is that federal law decided that when there is a protective order that you can't have a gun or ammunition. Absolutely. So this was an addition to the Gun Control Act of 1968, which established this really big regulatory scheme for firearms. It was passed in 1994. Um, and what it says is that uh, for protective orders issued after a person receives actual notice, after they have an opportunity for a hearing at which they're present, where they can present evidence, uh, and this order is issued against them, prohibiting them from certain acts of violence, harassment, stalking, um, and where it is issued against an intimate partner, which does not include dating partners that do not either live or have never lived together or do not share a child in common. Um, And then also where there is either a credible threat that that person presents a danger to the physical safety of that intimate partner or child, or by its very terms, prohibits them from doing these particular 
acts of violence. Um, and Congress passed this because of the very clear connection between armed abusers and the death and injury of intimate partners and their families. And tell us a little bit about that. That really hasn't, it certainly doesn't get any attention from the, the judges in the Fifth Circuit, but what is that clear connection between the presence of a gun and the increased dangers in, to, to actual people? Absolutely. So the vast majority of women in the United States are killed by an intimate partner rather than a stranger. The vast majority of those women killed by intimate partners are murdered by partners with firearms. You know, there are numerous studies detailing the connection between domestic violence and firearms. You know, for example, there's a study of people who either sought or did not seek protective orders in Texas, which found that women who sought protective orders were much more likely to report that that person had threatened them with a firearm, had used a firearm against them, had threatened or used firearms against shared children, family, friends, and strangers as well. Um, So it's not just that domestic abusers pose a significant risk to their intimate partners, which is you know, in my opinion, certainly valid in and of itself as a reason to disarm domestic abusers, but they also pose a risk to everybody else. So um, in some of your writings, the way you put it is that, you know, Congress created this legal regime and they did it late. It's 1994 when they, I mean, the the studies pile up, there is a, a push on Congress to attend to this violence against women, which, as you say, is private violence. So we, we you know, tend to sort of think of uh, uh, threats as you know, people in the streets. That's not the threat that most American women face. It is from people that they know and people that they know with guns. So Congress looks at this and, uh, as you say in your writings, creates this kind of regime that is supposed to protect survivors and and it's supposed to be preventative. So it's trying not to wait until there is a death. It's trying to use the studies to say, okay, we know that somebody with a gun is more likely to come kill this person. So we're going to take the guns away. Um, how is it then that the Congress saw this as sort of a bipartisan pass in 1994? Most Democrats voted for it, but a lot of Democrats voted against it. Most Republicans voted against it, but a fair number of Republicans voted for it. So, so more bipartisan than we would see in 2023. So how is it that this bill, which public opinion polls sort of show is, is very popular with people as well, how is it that the court, the Fifth, uh, Fifth Circuit, um, when it comes back to them after Bruin, after Bruin has said you have to use an originalism uh, approach, you have to look for an analogy in law, how is it that they come to see this? Um, and why is it, I'll just say, that there's almost no mention of domestic violence in the entire opinion? There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll do my best. One reason that I suspect that there's real short shrift in the Fifth Circuit's opinion about the dangers that 
armed abusers pose to their intimate partners and everyone else is that there is a small subset of folks after Bruin uh, in the legal world who seem to think that evidence like what we've talked about no longer matters, that it's no longer part of this legal analysis that Bruin requires. Um, So, you know, Bruin says at the outset, does the plain text of the Second Amendment cover the conduct at issue? And there's a great deal of disagreement about what what they're asking here. Uh, Do courts need to analyze who are the people? What constitute arms? Um, How do you define the conduct? Do you consider the status of the individual at this step of the analysis at all? Some courts have blanket said no. And so it's a really easy step to pass when you say the conduct at issue is mere possession of firearms, presumably for self-defense. Real easy check mark there. When it's do people subject to domestic violence protective orders where a court has found there is a credible threat of danger to an intimate partner or child possessing firearms, presumably for the purpose of self-defense, there's there's a different analysis there. And a lot of courts are still struggling with, you know, what does it mean that, that we're still clinging on to these presumptively lawful categories of regulations like prohibiting people who have felony convictions, prohibiting people experiencing mental illness, um, what does it mean that both Heller, McDonald, and Bruin all characterize the right as belonging to law-abiding, responsible citizens? Is that is that a caveat on who is included in the people? And it's been really unclear in post-Bruin litigation. Um, you know, once you clear that first step, the plain text, it's up to the government to show that the modern law is relevantly similar to historical laws, maybe around 1791, maybe around 1868. That's also a little unclear. And, uh, you know, the court is looking at history and saying, without really thinking very critically about why, there are no laws prohibiting people subject to domestic violence protective orders from having firearms at the founding. And there's a ton of different reasons for that. And I want to talk about all of them. It's something that's of particular interest to me. But but before we go there, I want to just backfill a couple of things, because I think you and I have read this case too many times. And uh, and I just want to make sure that the people who never have uh, understand that In the lower court case, what the judge writing for the majority said was that the the danger was taking away an individual Second Amendment rights. So the the way he set this up was uh, the person who was assaulted and threatened actually isn't in the case anymore. It becomes Mr. Rahini versus the government and versus Congress, who passed this 1994 law. And the way he, Wilson explains it, is that Congress itself is the threat, and he foresees, and this is his language, the government stripping speeders or people who do not recycle 
or drive an electric vehicle of their right to keep and bear arms. And then in the concurrence, Judge Ho says that, well, restraining orders are kind of tactical devices used in you know, divorce proceedings. And, and he offers a handful of anecdotes and some data saying that you know sometimes protective orders aren't justified. He mentions David Letterman. I, I've described this uh, in my own writing as a clumsy dog whistle, suggesting that you know men are falsely accused by these harpy women seeking advantageous divorce outcomes. And there is no mention in the opinion of the number of people who die, or the fact that Congress had a compelling interest in public safety or in anything. There's, there's sort of no attempt to shape what Congress did as for good reason. Instead, it's sort of seen as a dangerous taking away of the liberties from a man who was accused but not yet found um, guilty of a crime. So I just wanted to, to, to backfill that. Um, but I do want to talk about the history thing and Brune and that, uh, you know, where is in, in Heller? In 2008, we had this really radical change in what and how we talked about the Second Amendment. Uh, but there was some sort of carve out. It was dicta, but it was a carve out nonetheless that said like, well, you know, this doesn't mean to challenge longstanding uh, laws that are there to protect safety or to stop you from taking a gun, you know, into a sensitive place. Uh and yet in Brune, that really didn't seem to hold because New York had a longstanding law, 100 years, that said, you know, you could carry uh, concealed carry, but you needed a permit. And the Supreme Court said that that, that violated the, the U.S. Constitution, the Second Amendment. So here we are back. And as you've alluded to, we don't have anything from the Supreme Court truly explaining how to figure this out. Like how, what, what is, what counts as an analogy? Is it, if if we're talking about dangerous persons, is that enough? Or does there have to be a domestic abuse thing? Now we will never find one for 1791 because as you've noted in your writings and I've noted in mine, coverture meant that uh, married people were one person in law. Husbands had the right to sexual access to their wives 24 seven. There was no such thing as marital rape. Men could also beat their wives up to a point. They couldn't kill them, but they 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 could beat them. So so 1791 won't help us at all. And 1868 isn't that much better. There's a few improvements that have been made to women's legal status um, in 1868. So where does that leave us if originalism is controlling here, but yet didn't actually start caring about domestic violence until the 20th, late in the 20th century. I think it's fair to say it's not part of the tradition of the United States to care about this. We've spent more time not caring about it. So what do you think this does for originalism? What, 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 anyway, that's a ridiculously long question and you answer whatever part of it you want to. You know, I think a lot of this depends on what the Supreme Court is going to do presumably next June. I'm assuming this is going to be a late dropping case. Um, and and part of what I see in Rahimi is erring on the side of being unduly strict, unduly narrow. And in a way that's not really compelled by Bruin, but it's just not clear. So you know, Bruin says where we're talking about an unprecedented societal concern, you're meant to adopt a more nuanced approach to historical analogy. 
Now, many of the cases dealing with the federal law prohibiting people subject to domestic violence protective orders have characterized the societal problem really broadly, too broadly, I think, as domestic violence generally, which has existed for a long, long time. But as we're talking about a national historical tradition of firearm regulation, it only makes sense that the societal concern should be domestic violence perpetrated with firearms. And as several historians have noted, you know, marital homicide committed with firearms before the Civil War is incredibly rare, whereas now it constitutes about 60% of intimate partner homicides. I think it's clearly an unprecedented societal concern requiring a more permissive historical analogy. And this is where the Fifth Circuit makes additional missteps, in my opinion, requiring that those two central metrics of analogy, how the right is burdened and why, they're so strict, unnecessarily strict to say that it has to be in exactly the same way and for exactly the same purpose. So looking at categories of historical laws that disarmed people perceived at the time to be dangerous, they say, you know, well, those have to do with threats to political institutions, insurrections, rebellions, which also necessarily involve physical harm to the public, of which intimate partners are members of the public. And so I I think they ignore both the larger reason why these laws were passed, the historical context of both the role of women, the understanding of the acceptability of a certain level of violence against women, um, as well as this evolving understanding of how these individuals are not dangerous only to their intimate partners, they wreak havoc on entire communities. And so it, it shows a real lack of understanding of the dynamics of domestic violence, the public costs of domestic violence. Um, and to your point about sort of the the not so subtle subtext of um, vindictive women seeking protective orders where there's absolutely no danger, it's tactical for divorce and custody, Um If it's tactical, it's not very good. Um, You know, Joan Meyer at GW has done a great deal of um, translational research on the concept of parental alienation, um, which is the claim that one parent will alienate a child from another parent where they're in an unamicable divorce. They're battling over custody. And what the research really bears out is that courts in large part, do not believe that women are being abused. And in fact, it can cost them custody of their children. Um, and so it, it really is, it's like an uninformed dog whistle that appeals to people who I think generally believe women are liars. It's hard to read that. Um, the Supreme Court for the people who are not Supreme Court nerds, do they have to pay any attention to the reasoning given by 
either Wilson or Ho, or are they free to rethink this? Because the government tried to make the argument that that you're making here. They tried to say, okay, there is a historical analogy. We, we've always looked at these categories of dangerous persons, and this is not about an individual. It's about a category. And you know, you want to say it's not a social problem, but I'm going to say it is a social problem. And the court rejected that. So, and, and I think that, um, uh, I think you and I would agree that uh, originalism, which is pitched as like neutrality, and it's going to mean that none of the justices need to weigh in on their opinions and their politics won't matter, is simply untrue because all now we have is a new game in which people play with history. So, one side says the history is there, the other side says the history isn't there. So originalism has sort of won, and now we're having that debate. Um, but it's not clear that we're actually having the debate and that that the history is being considered very carefully. So, okay, does the Supreme Court so want, does the Supreme Court have to listen to anything that was in here? Uh, do you imagine the Supreme Court being able to listen to arguments that involve data about who harms whom and why Congress would pass something like that? And are there particular people on the court who you think might be open to that? I am cautiously optimistic that the court is going to be receptive to the idea that the Fifth Circuit was unnecessarily narrow, unnecessarily strict in a way that they were not instructing the lower courts to be. I also think that whether they'll be persuaded by evidence-based research depends perhaps on how it's presented to them. Certainly, the Supreme Court has indicated that they'll no longer be performing the kinds of means and scrutiny that I think most of us are familiar with, intermediate scrutiny, strict scrutiny, requiring governments to show how well fit the law is to achieving this important government purpose of public safety. But necessarily, when you're thinking about analogizing to historical laws, how the rights burdened and why, um, the broader principles, I don't think are that different today than they were for founding generations. Ultimately, we are talking about public safety. That is the why. And so explaining how dangerous these individuals are, um, both by showing deaths of intimate partners, children, first responders, all these different groups of people, but also how effective the laws are at preventing these types of deaths and injuries is really just another way of showing how dangerous they are. And so I think fitting it nicely and neatly into the framework, they might be a little bit more receptive. Of course, so many of the briefs being filed in United States versus Rahimi, including ours, cites this um, incredibly rich dissent that now Justice Barrett had issued in a Seventh Circuit opinion when she was a, a judge on the Seventh Circuit in a case called Cantor versus Barr, where she very broadly identifies this national historical tradition of disarming dangerous people. Um, you know, she says that history is consistent with common sense, that we can disarm dangerous people consistent with the Second Amendment. 
And she goes on to say that we can do so based on our modern understanding of who is dangerous. We're not limited to the categories of dangerous people that were identified at the founding. And she very specifically talks about misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence. So I think clearly she is contemplating that today we are still able to address armed abusers, even if the founding generation did not. And I think she does so by applying the principles that we've, we've been discussing, um, evaluating laws at a higher level of generality, um, being a little more flexible, not requiring the exact same burden, the exact same purpose. And that's precisely what Bruin says we should do. So, and that seems to me really consistent with what we heard in oral arguments, even in the Bruin case, because there were moments when she seemed concerned about people having guns on the subways and the justices seemed to split. And 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 for me, I'm older than you are, and I remember um, uh, when um, Bernie Getz shot um, the teenagers on the subway. And as I looked at the court, I felt like, huh, they've the, that's the Rorschach test. Some of them are thinking very positively about Bernie Getz as 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 the vigilante defender, and then some of them are thinking, but wait, all those teenagers did was ask for $5 and some of them ended up paralyzed for life. And maybe that wasn't Bernie Getz's decision. Maybe that was the court's decision. Maybe that was the jury's decision. And and I heard some of that during Bruin. And Justice Barrett really seemed to be thinking more critically about, about how dangerous it might be to have people armed at baseball games in on college campuses, in subways. Um, is there anyone else on the court that you think is maybe open to that since you need more than um, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, plus Amy Coney Barrett? You know, it's interesting that you say that. Barrett did talk about concerns about firearms in public places like Times Square. Um, But you also hear this narrative from the Chief Justice Roberts, who's talking about firearms at the sporting events where people are imbibing in a lot of alcohol. And I, I do think that there is an undeniably human urge to be concerned about the risk that firearms pose. And I think you're right to say that these types of laws are broadly incredibly popular. And I think this is evident in the really short shrift that the Fifth Circuit gives to the background of Zaki Rahimi, um, the quote unquote salutary policy effects of laws like these, because it is so clear that these are dangerous people. It's not necessarily a popular position to say that people like Zaki Rahimi should have access to guns. And you see them fall back on that neutrality of originalism by analogy to say it's not it's not necessarily that we want them to have guns, but our interpretation of the Bruin test compels us to reach this conclusion. Um, 
you might end up cutting this out because I'm, I'm taking us further afield. But you see a similar concern, I think, in uh, Barrett and Thomas's dissent in Countermint versus Colorado, this First Amendment true threats case, where they are concerned about the requirement for subjective intent to threaten on the ability to get protective orders, <laughs> which um, it, it'll be really interesting to see if that concern transitions well to this case. I think that uh, I think that we're going to have you back when oral arguments are heard in this case. This is an ongoing conversation, but 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 before we end, I'm wondering. People who are listening, and this is making no sense to them whatsoever because they're not interested in uh, a person who has beat somebody up in a parking lot, shot off a gun, and threatened to hurt them if they tell anybody that that person really should have their guns taken away. It's such an egregious case that I, I, I think once you tell the story, Dam- it's it's damning, and I think that's probably why the Fifth Circuit doesn't tell the case, doesn't give either uh, his behavior or the talk in much detail about the threat that he really posed to um, the unnamed CM in the, in the case. But is there anything um, people can or should do now before the Supreme Court hears this case? Is there something brewing in states or in Congress that they should be um, encouraging their representatives to be passing or, or doing, or are we just waiting for the Supreme Court on this one? Only time will tell what the Supreme Court is going to decide here. In my own personal opinion, I don't think anybody should be waiting for what the Supreme Court is going to say, whether that's, um, you know, your, your average citizen, whether that's a legislator. What I would really urge is that in addition to the prohibitions on purchase and possession for people subject to domestic violence protective orders, what is also vitally important for the effectiveness of those laws is to include incredibly detailed firearm removal policies it's not enough to say that these individuals can't have them. It's really important to have an apparatus in place to make sure that they get rid of them. And so many states in the United States have laws that prohibit people subject to domestic violence protective orders from having firearms. They're in some ways more expansive than the federal law to include dating partners that don't live together and don't share children, um, to include temporary orders where the risk is often most acute, and then to provide detailed information about how they must give them up and to whom and in what time frame, and how these various agencies and organizations are going to make sure that that is happening. You know, ensuring that if an individual is told to give their firearms to law enforcement within 24 hours, that there's a circular amount of communication between the law enforcement agency, the prosecutor's office, and the courts that they have done so. And if not, 
clear steps about what they're going to do to get them. You know, the King County Regional Domestic Violence Firearms Unit is a really great example of a community that saw this gap and went to fill it. That's Brooklyn we're talking about, right? Kings County? Oh, no, I'm so sorry. This is um, Seattle, Washington. Seattle, Washington. Okay. See, federalism. It all depends where you're sitting right now. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So they, they went in and have thought about this and have what you would consider model legislation? So they, they, they passed a law in 2014, and they've since updated it to include the lessons that they learned from the implementation. What I would say is that it requires everybody in that process to be incredibly dedicated to the mission. You want prosecutors who are involved and knowledgeable about the orders that are being issued the cases where firearms are identified as being in the hands of those individuals. You want law enforcement to be the agencies serving those orders, asking for firearm surrender, talking with victims, survivors, and advocates to make sure that they are adhering to whatever safety plan that they've worked up for themselves. Um, And also to ensure that they're getting information from the person most likely to know if an abuser still has access to firearms, to know exactly who's going to do what, when, and how to ensure compliance with that order. Um, Kelly, if there's a map available of where states stand on this, I'll link it in the show notes. I'll look for that. Um, I want to thank you so much. I've learned so much from this conversation, and, um, and I actually think that we're ending on something of a positive note, which is that it is possible for localities, for states to work through some of these things. It will take time, but to figure out how it is that you could implement something like this and all of the the steps um, required. Is there something I've not asked you that you 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 think we need to to end with today in this conversation? I think the last thing I would say, and I think you've done such a good job throughout this conversation and the other conversations that you've had about Rohini, which is really centering the people most at risk of violence in these cases that is missing from the Fifth Circuit and so many discussions about these laws, which are victims and survivors of domestic violence their children, their families, their communities. Um, there's, there's a danger in framing this as just a disagreement between two entities, a person who wants to have a gun and a government that does not want them to have a gun. And there's, there's a third person in this equation and often more than just that third person that we don't hear about often enough. Oh, what a great way to conclude. That's that's so brilliant. I think that that's the shift that we saw in Heller and McDonald is this sort of move towards the individual gun holder as somehow a very special citizen who will protect us from tyranny and will protect our homes from violence rather than seeing that person as also a potential perpetrator of violence and, and somebody who the state needs to be 
regulating. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And I really look forward to talking to you again uh, as we get closer to the Supreme Court hearing this case. Thank you so much.